Cheers. Cheers. That's a nice ring. Nice ring to it. I'm Kana. I'm Ambi. Welcome to Diplomacy Games, episode 62. 62. Three years I found out. Oh, yes. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That came up in an interview. Yes. Um, Today's interview. Today's interview with Doug Kent Mm -hmm. from Diplomacy World. Um, But before we get into that, where are we drinking, Ambi? Uh, We're drinking in the Empire Hotel in Fortitude Valley. Yes, um, and it, it strikes me as like a, it's a like eighteen hundreds. Yeah, it's an eighteen hundreds type of old school pub. It hasn't really been renovated since then, judging by. Yeah. <laughs> I think it has been renovated. Well, well, yeah, this is what it's meant different. to look like. Well, like no, no, no. I mean the actual layout. Like you got the old school couch zones. Don't you think? Yeah, but this this would have actually been turned into look like that. They wouldn't have kept this stuff during the seventies and the sixties. Well, the fifties. No, not. not. They would have put it in now to make it like a funky bar. Because Fortitude Valley, for those who are listening who are outside of um, Brisbane, is probably the main nightlife precinct for the young folks. Yes. It's got all sorts of... um, Yeah, I'd say that that would be where the nightlife kind of happens. Yep. Lots of clubs and bars. Old like us wouldn't go to them very often. Yeah, I'm not really into that doof-doof music anymore. Right. <laughs> They're talking doof-doof or not quite doof-doof. The original venue that I proposed to, you popped in there and it was like a... Oh, it's heavy metal punk kind of vibe. Yeah, it was like a really loud. Which one was that one? Um, was that, that the, was the King Lear. King Lear's yeah. Lair or whatever like that. Or yeah. Like, apart from the music, it would have been a nice little lair. But, yeah, I couldn't... Yeah, just too loud. Too loud. I think, I think this is a, not bad sound volumes in here. It's um, a bit warm. Humid. Humid. Yeah, very humid. So hot weather plus lots of rain equals crappy Brisbane weather. Yep. Yep. Anyway, sweating through it, folks. Waiting for the aircon to kick in. Yeah. <laughs> I said to Kana after I got our pre-interview, uh, sorry, pre-podcast um, drinks, I was talking to the, uh, the, the bar lady and, and said, oh, it's a bit warm in here. She said... Yeah, well, the general manager's in, and he doesn't like it when we put the air conditioning on with the windows open. <laughs> so she's waiting for the manager to go, I hope. That's right. And, yeah. I, and I said, well, you could always close the windows. <laughs> uh, too much sense in that. Mm. What are you speaking of drinks? What are you drinking? Uh, I'm drinking a Maxwell Silver Hammer Shiraz from the Barossa, and it's not too bad. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm on a new step. No, a new town. New town of pale ale. New town pale ale. Now we've drunk at the New Town Brewery a few episodes back. No, not likely. New Town's in Sydney. Oh, what was that one that we drank at then? Newstead. Newstead. That was quite a lot of episodes ago. That was about got to be at least two years two years ago. That was also at the beginning of the summer, I think. Oh, it's just the other day. Um, anyway, good drink. Excellent drink for you. Good. Mine's not too bad. All right. And we will have to top up shortly, I think. Well, to me, yeah, 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 yeah. Top you up. <laughs> oh. Anyway, we promised an interview with you, for you guys. Yep. And, um, well, this episode we spoke to Doug Kent, who's the um, chief lead editor of Diplomacy World. Editor-in-chief. I think we've got a siren coming up here somewhere. There we go. No, stop now. Good. <laughs> okay. It mustn't have been important. <laughs> they must have already turned up to wherever the local knife fight is. Oh no, here it is. There he there goes. Go. Lots of fires. Lots That's of... the third one in like an hour. Yeah, but I've just edited it out so no one's going to hear all the noise of the thing. 
Yeah, but we did tell them that we've got a siren coming. Yeah, probably. There's probably a little bit of siren in the background. Yeah. So it is. We're on the we're on the main road. We're on the main drag. Yep. Um. Anyway, but to, we should move to the interview. Absolutely. There we go. Doug Kent, thank you so much for joining us today on the Diplomacy Games podcast. Uh, well, uh, you promised to make it worth my while, so just you know, PayPal me the money over, and we'll be good. <laughs> That's cool. You can kind of give us a reimbursement on Patreon in, in kind. <laughs> oh, well, we hadn't discussed that part. No, I'm not. I'm not doing that. Oh, this, I'll put it. This, I'll put it this in the is mail. Starting off like a buddy bad bad stab, and you know, in, in 1901. <laughs> you, it's usually so you won't go to Burgundy. Somebody has to be attacked. You have to attack someone. Unless you're Italy, you have to attack someone. So I'm sorry. You're the one speaking, so you're the one who gets stabbed. I can't help you. <laughs> Although I, I, I disagree, because I suppose Austria can always attack Italy. Uh, from oh, the I, just meant, I just meant that Italy generally doesn't have to attack anyone. Austria has to attack someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah cool. Um, Wait, what so- do I, know? I don't win any games anyway, so don't listen to anything I have to say. Oh, okay. So uh, you, you've got this big passion, which is obviously diplomacy world amongst, you know, your many other things that you run. Um, but you're a little bit self-deprecating in that space when it comes to your overall gameplay. What kind of got you into the game in the first place? Uh, growing up in Connecticut in the 70s, there was uh, our next door neighbor, the Plogues, had some Avalon Hill games which was the company at that time that in the U.S. It was manufacturing diplomacy. Um, and it was Mike Plogue there who had introduced me to a few games, Waterloo, um, baseball strategy, and one of them was diplomacy, although we never played because we didn't understand the rules. And from there, I started buying, uh, when I moved to New Jersey, I started buying war games, mostly Avalon Hill games, almost exclusively, and a lot of multiplayer games. And it was at that time that I started uh, working out uh, diplomacy and how to play it and then searching for the postal hobby eventually because there's no way I would ever have seven friends or six friends at a time I mean in any respect let alone being in the same place at one time so uh, I um, searched out the postal hobby that way and then started to learn how to actually play the game instead of the way that I thought you played it I was, I'm, I've never been that great at understanding the rules without somebody helping me so you got a bit of an idea, a bit of an inkling, and then where did you go from there? Well, once um, I the Avalon Hill uh, had a magazine they used to put out called The General, and there was a victim, there was a opponents wanted section on the back, and I'd been messing around with diplomacy a little bit on bulletin board systems, unsuccessfully trying to get games together and such, and someone there said they were looking for diplomacy. Um, opponents. I contacted that person and he had a uh, zine that he was doing. I believe that was Sean Erickson doing Victims Wanted. And um, through that, I signed up for a few games of diplomacy and uh, was slowly and then quickly introduced to the rest of the postal hobby uh, in the US and globally and just started um, subscribing to or trading for any zine that I could um, and playing everywhere. So and every- that? Oh. 
around that was around around eighty eight. I think is when I finally joined the postal hobby. Eight nineteen eighty eight, which was that it was at that time that I had the brilliant idea that if I'm going to get all these postal zines that you had to pay for because postage and printing was expensive. I, instead of paying for them, I would just create my own zine and then trade with the other publishers. You get my zine, I get yours, because I figured that was a great way to save money, uh, which was a moron idea, but because um, it ended up costing me a lot more, because zines, I didn't realize at the time you, how much money you lose on publishing a postal zine, but that's how I got started on the publishing side, and then I really started getting, I mean, I'd get at least one zine in the mail every day. I was getting maybe 50 or 60 zines worldwide uh, every month and playing in most of them, just not very well. And, and look, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on something you've just touched, you've mentioned there, and that's on, on the actual um, Diplomacy website, you've got a whole archive section, not only of back issues of Diplomacy World, but a whole heap of other zines and so forth. What what are you doing at the moment with all these zines that you collected over the years? Are you planning to bring any of those onto the site somehow? Or I know I'm jumping way ahead. I probably shouldn't have done that so early. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, I don't. I didn't. I didn't know there was a set script, so I don't think you're jumping anywhere. Um, I still have about oh, I don't know, five or six or seven bigs. Uh, Xerox boxes of uh, old zines that I still need to scan and post on there. Uh, my personal collection that I had from uh, of both my own zines and all the ones that I was getting in the late 80s and through the 90s uh, were destroyed in a flood of a storage unit. So I've most of what I've been scanning came from um, a collection that was out uh, that was out in California that Larry Peary had at one time, some of what he had. And then various people have sent me boxes of zines over the years as they find some and don't know what to do with them. Um, so I'm missing great sections of hobby history, but just out of habit or in case people want to uh, go back and look and see what's what the hobby used to be like before the Internet age or even during the Internet age, depending on the zine, then... Um, I just keep manually scanning them and posting them. Some of it is just uh, reminiscing for me, um, especially if it's you know if it's a zine that I used to get, going back and reading through the issues. And then after I scan them, I stick them back in the boxes and stick them in my shed, and they just sit there collecting dust. So that that's quite a collection, Doug. Do you, do you have a favorite issue or a favorite? You know, like series of issues or a favorite zine that you think back to and think, yeah, that that's I really missed that one, or is it kind of more generally, you know, um, oh, I've got I've got this is a favorite and this is a favorite and that's a favorite. How does that work for you? It's hard to say. The there are personal favorites that I have, but they're really only my favorites because those are the ones that I was getting personally and playing in and participating in heavily. Uh, there were other ones that I either never got around to participating in or that were a little bit before my time that I've enjoyed looking through and reading um, nearly as much as the ones that have uh, have uh, a reminiscent factor for me. So, And then because I ha don't have any copies of my own, 
uh, zines. The the issues that I've gotten of mine, um, I'm still I still only have about a third of the issues that I did. Um, those are sort of trips down memory lane as well because I've enjoy, I enjoy the the GMing and the publishing as much as I did uh, playing in other people's zines since uh, everybody always attacks me and I I never win. Um, I reliving stuff uh, both in my life and uh, the friendships that I built up with a lot of people that played in the zines that I published is probably um, the most fun that I have in scanning things and putting them in there. If it's not learning um, about portions of the hobby that I wasn't a part of at the time, those are really the ones that are more interesting to me currently anyway. That might change tomorrow. I don't, I'm not exactly a, a stable person so I might jump around a little bit when, when it comes to the evolution of your initial involvement with postal and zines and so forth what came next in your um, diplomacy career if I could pull it that well while I was uh, doing um, my main zine in the that I started in the very late 80s which was called Maniac's Paradise, and then I started getting all these other scenes, and then discovering the UK hobby, the Australian hobby, um, the European hobby, not so much. I didn't get that many uh, straight European zines that weren't from the UK. Um, I all, that was just about the time that, um, as we moved into the 90s, that the internet service CompuServe started, um, which was you know pre-internet, but it had local drop dial numbers where you could dial in locally from wherever you lived using the old 2400 baud modems that we all craved and I started playing on CompuServe a lot and then GMing there also um, that's where I met a lot of my other diplomacy friends and then became editor of the, they had two zines on there that came out weekly with results of games, one was called the Armchair Diplomat and then they had that was T.A.D. Tad, and then they had Ted, the eccentric diplomat, which was for variant games. And then I, I somehow was nominated to become editor of that, um, which was not just gumboat games, but a lot of the popular variants of the time. But they were all being hand adjudicated back then. So I got pretty heavily involved in, uh, in CompuServe and the CompuServe forum for a while um, until... Once the internet started to take off, then that died off, and um, and that was pretty much the end of that. So on on the actual diplomacy world um, zine, so that was started in nineteen seventy four um, by Walter Buchanan, I believe. Right. Yes. Yep. Yep. And it it ran for you know, quite a few years as a postal zine, all the way up to two thousand and five. I was reading. Um, so that makes it now. It's been running for 46 years. Um, it's primarily internet-based. Um, that's that's quite a, a massive historic, unbroken historic record. So I was, I was kind of wondering, Doug, how you ended up as that, well, as, as the lead editor at, at Diplomacy World. Well, it's uh, I've actually been lead editor twice. The first time... Um, one of my good friends who I've been friends with from the diplomacy hobby for, I don't know, 25 or more years now, Jack McHugh, um, he wanted to be the lead editor of Diplomacy World. I believe 
David Hood, who runs um, or is still involved with, I don't know if he still runs, but uh, DixieCon, which is a uh, a late May convention in the uh, Charlotte, North Carolina area, was the lead editor at the time. And he was looking to step off. He'd had enough. He'd done more than his share. And Jack wanted to take it over and become lead editor. The problem was Jack isn't necessarily the most reliable individual and he wasn't interested in doing the physical printing, stapling, mailing, postage, uh, at that time managing of, uh, of subscription balances since you had to pay to get it at that time. And uh, so he'd asked me, hey, if I become lead editor, will you be the publisher? And I agreed, and that lasted about two issues, I believe. And then Jack said, well, I can't do this anymore. So just sort of out of default until I found somebody else, I started doing it uh, both as lead editor and publisher. Um, and I did that for, I don't even remember how many issues, I don't know. Did that for maybe five or six years, I think. Uh, but I, I generally really enjoyed it, especially how at that time because people were beginning to get internet addresses through uh you know the various online services here we had america online CompuServe, prodigy um and um then people began getting having uh, proper email addresses also it was a great time of uh revolution within the postal hobby because people were able to now email articles over so there was a more reformatting and cutting and pasting and a lot less of just straight typing and typing and typing and typing to get articles from the um, from the handwritten or printed stage into into the zine proper. And I did that for, like I said, I think it was six years or so. I'd actually have to check to know for sure. But I, all the old all the back issues are up there on diplomacyworld.net, so somebody else can correct me. Um, and then uh, my uh, wife, whose health, uh, physically and mentally, was not in great shapes, um, had some massive problems, and I had to walk away from the hobby basically entirely. So I had to hand off the diplomacy world to somebody else. I'd I shut down Maniac's Paradise. I shut down... Uh, whatever else I was running at the time. Uh, I had a few other zines I was doing. Um, Grand Hyatt, where I was running uh, the Colonia variant. Uh, not the Colonial variant that Avalon Hill produced, which is a substandard variant, but Fred Hyatt's Colonia variant. I was running that in a zine. I had a few other minor zines that I was doing. Um, I had to shut them all down and um, hand off uh, Diplomacy World and just move on and was sort of out of the hobby for... Uh, I don't know. Another six years or so, I I partially burned out, but mainly it was just having to focus on uh, my wife Mara and her health, and trying to spend my time helping her and taking her to the doctor and taking her to the hospital and all sorts of personal, you know, miserable issues that I had to deal with at the time. Right. So there's um, yeah. So there's a there's a quite a hectic backstory there. I'm sorry to hear. 
Yeah, I'm actually. I actually just finished the not diplomacy related, really, but I just. I'm currently doing my second rewrite on my second memoir, and this memoir is about my entire relationship with uh, with Mara. Some members of the diplomacy hobby did actually meet her and spend time with her, and a lot of people got to know her through uh, the subzines that she did in my zines. So then. Uh, around 2006 or so, maybe 2007, uh, Jim Burgess was trying to keep, this is Jim Burgess, the late, great Jim Burgess, who passed away a few years ago and had been the longtime publisher of the Abyssinian Prince, both as a postal zine and then as both as a postal and electronic zine, um, basically bullied me into... Uh, coming back and becoming lead editor again with all types of false accolades of, oh, you're the only one who can bring this thing back. You're the only one who can save it. You're the only one, whatever. And I didn't believe him because I'm uh, my, but I figured, okay, well, I enjoyed doing the publishing part. We'll give it a go again. How long can it last? And now that's been, we've done, uh, but mostly with Jim and now a few without him, sadly. Uh, I think about 50 issues that I've done uh, since the second time I came back. Uh, now, of course, during this period, it's been it's entirely an electronic zine. It's all in PDF format. Um, and so there's no more stapling and photocopying and all those expenses, which helps. Um, but and there's been some really good issues that I'm proud of and then some issues that have been just okay. But um, every time I, th- I thought of bailing and saying forget it there's not enough support in the hobby the hobby's changed too much uh jim was able to convince me no just give it another issue it's fine believe me this is a better issue than you think he was usually the voice the positive voice of uh optimism to my gloom and doom that i'm well known for and uh we're still going so at least i am unfortunately jim's not anymore but uh I feel obligated for his sake to keep going for now. Well, why do you Why do you feel that the um, the hobby's changed? Well, the way that I see how the hobby morphed when it moved from zines to the internet initially, um, postal zines and then electronic zines were still the mainstay. There were. Um, and because the fact that most players, even face-to-face players, subscribe to at least one zine somewhere, that zine and the information it would carry and the the flyers that publishers would share with each other about upcoming conventions or contests or uh, the annual charity auction, the Bedora auction that we used to do, it, gave, it helped make the, we'll call it the postal hobby, even when it was no longer postal, although there still are some uh, zines that are um, entirely postal. Uh, Brendan White does one out uh, from your way, uh, Damn the Consequences, that still is only distributed postally. Um, once the postal hobby began to lose its hold as a centerpiece, the hobby has sort of fracked broken off into smaller factions we've had uh there's the various local hobbies and local organizations there's 
certain websites that people seem to enjoy sticking to one rather than all of them because the interfaces are all so different. Um, then there's the group that likes to play on the judges, which I don't know how many people there still are on there. I don't know. Um, I've never really been a judge person. But there's no centralized gathering point for all the individual hobbies anymore. And I don't mean in terms of uh, direction or in terms of control. Every attempt I've ever seen, both while I've been playing diplomacy and in the ho hobby history I saw before, any attempts at true organization that included any type of governance have been massive failures. Nobody can govern the diplomacy hobby in any way. Um, nobody wants to be governed. Nobody needs to be governed. People just do what they want to do and play what they want to play and do whatever. But there was still centralized. We had Diplomacy World uh, and then the Diplomatic Pouch, uh, which came later, which was still a, a centralized point. We had um, registration numbers for all the games people were playing so that you could go back and see the results of all the games and see what areas of the hobby were growing, what areas of the hobby were shrinking, do statistical studies of which nations are faring better in which variants, uh, the difference between games played in one country versus another country, which were sometimes dramatic differences, especially when you compare uh, games played in the UK versus games played in the US. There were very specific differences about who England allies, allies with. Um, those things that were centrally organized and sort of uh, touched every part of the hobby are gone. So there's nothing to tie the individual pieces together. If you go and you play diplomacy on a website, uh, or if you play diplomacy with your local club, you don't necessarily have ties to anything else in the rest of the diplomacy world. Whether you know that the rest of the diplomacy world exists or not, you don't have any specific ties to it anymore. Everything is just sort of floating off on its own. Well, sort of, except for, you know, really good self-published zines that connect, you know, people together. I, I know I definitely look forward to receiving it in my on my email. I've been receiving it now for, well, I don't know, 10 years or so. Um, and I've, I've always, you know, had a read of that and it... it, it does seem to me like that is um, an element of being connected, you know, I, I, but I do agree with you, like there is very fragmented out there on the web. You've got your, you know, just your face to faces and then you've got your, you know, play by emailers and then you've got, you know, a couple of holdouts still playing postal and, you know, there's the, those the, all those websites themselves that sort of run specifically there. Um, but I've always, I've always thought of, your work bringing out the um, diplomacy world, Doug, and before that, um, Jim, as as being a, from my perspective, a really important part of the ecosystem for diplomacy for precisely that point, because it seemed to um, bring voices from different parts of the globe into one place. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing that it must also be quite rewarding as well at times. Um, in, in your mind, what's the most rewarding part of it? 
uh, well, aside from uh, when an issue is finished and uploaded, and uh, and I feel that it's a if I feel it's a particularly good issue, um, that when that happens, it's quite rewarding. But of course, a good issue is uh, you know really very little to do with me specifically, except me begging or whining or threatening people to uh, contribute and write some articles, which is. Uh, which is really my main job is just harassing people to get them to to put something in there or to get new blood in there, people who haven't written before. Um, the most rewarding part is probably also the part that uh, most of the old timers say they miss the most of the postal hobby, which is getting to know people and their personalities, who they are, what they do outside of the hobby. That was always what held. That was the other part that held uh, the hobby together and made it grow so large. At times, in the '80s and then '90s, was that you you actually knew whether you met them or not. You grew to know these people that were in the hobby with you, what their personality was like, um, the personal joking that went back and forth in the various zines or online forums was, you know, endless and uh, of great volumes. And unfortunately, the websites of today, most of them don't have that kind of uh, that kind of personal touch. There's a lot of anonymity. And so there's been a lot less, in some respects, less opportunity to get to know uh, new people and who they are and um, and what their lives are and become friend become true friends with them. But the interactions that I have with people, um, if they're uh, anywhere more than just surface interactions, are still the most rewarding part of doing diplomacy world or. Of publishing a, a gaming zine at all, I just recently restarted Eternal Sunshine because I'd missed GMing, and I said, "Okay, well, I'll run a couple games postally." And I imagine most of the people who play in there are going to be um, nobody new to me. They're going to be just people that I've dealt, talked to, and met, and uh, become friends with over the last uh, ten or twenty years. But it'll still be a a small gathering point for. Uh, people that uh, I consider friends. It's always amazed me that in the diplomacy hobby, you can uh, become very close friends with certain people, even if you never actually meet them in person. Um, You know, the internet and Facebook and everything has sort of, in some ways, grown to, uh, to be the same way. But I've found that in hobbies like diplomacy, you get much more the authentic person and who they really are, not the exciting or you know perfect person that they show the world on uh, social media. You get the actual person with all their warts and their scars and their what they're depressed about and miserable about and problems that they're facing. Um, uh, Jack McHugh, who I mentioned earlier, uh, who was who wanted to be the lead editor of Diplomacy World, I've been. I'd consider him among my you know, 10 or 15 closest friends, and I've known him for now 25 or 30 years, and we never met in face to face. We still never had the opportunity to meet, um, because just at the time I was becoming good friends with him is when I moved down to Dallas, and he lives up in 
Pennsylvania and the Philadelphia area, and our paths have just never crossed. But he knows almost everything about me, and I know almost everything about him during that whole time period. So that's still the most rewarding part of doing the zine, doing Diplomacy World. That and when you are able to find or somebody introduces you to new blood from new areas of the hobby that are now going to discover uh, Diplomacy World and other parts of the hobby through Diplomacy World. Every you know, as new when new people come in, which um, out of necessity we've, uh, although we've always tried, but out of necessity, and we've lost a lot of old time hobby players in the last five years. So we've had some new faces come, and they bring new ideas, new perspectives, and um, new passion for the game that um, people have been playing it for much longer than they have may have lost a little bit of, and it's it's sort of invigorating to to be reintroduced to people who are still discovering uh, all the different ways it can be played and all the different variants they can enjoy and um, enjoying the history of the of the hobby. Um, question for you, Doug. Um, do you play the game much now? Uh, I'm. There's always at least a few games that I'm playing in. Face-to-face, I don't play often. Um, my attempts to get games going here in uh, Dallas, Texas, or in the surrounding area have been met with miserable failure. Um, there just don't seem to be enough players locally who can get ourselves together and form any type of group. And I'm probably not the best person to be the organizer of that, as I'm not the most social person these days. Do you attend tournaments every so often? I have yet to attend a national U.S. DIPCON or a world DIPCON. I, well, for most of my hobby experience, almost, for, let's put it this way, for, for all of my hobby time, except for presently, um, I've been married uh, either to my first wife or to my second wife. And... My first wife, Mara, because of her health issues, she didn't want me traveling long distances uh, and leaving her alone for, you know, for a weekend or whatever, because she quite often needed me and needed my assistance. And my second wife wasn't really a fan of the diplomacy hobby at all. Um, And she tolerated the things that I was doing electronically and such. But um, the one opportunity I had during that marriage to go and play in World Dipcon in Chicago, which I had planned to do um, about three days before we were set to leave for Chicago. She canceled it. Oh, she was doing something also, um, uh, going to a celebration in Chicago for a 50th birthday of one of her favorite actors that, um, that I'd bought her uh, VIP attendance to. And for whatever reason, she canceled the whole weekend and said, no, we can't go. We're not going. She was sort of the master of canceling things at the last minute. So just uh, my spouses have not been fans of me going and traveling to diplomacy tournaments. Plus, now currently, I no longer like flying. So if I do attend one, it'll be uh, I'll be driving or taking the train or something. I don't think it's fair to the other passengers to have me in an airplane at the moment. That um, that's a, that's obviously a, a 
troublesome um, and difficult period, obviously, of your life to have gone through all that when you've got a, a hobby that obviously you're clearly passionate about and first up, you know, understandably making that um, sacrifice, I suppose, to make sure that you're there for your wife um, and obviously for, um, until you know, um, she was no longer there. Um, and then obviously second time around having that set of circumstances which is obviously quite disappointing as well and now <laughs> not feeling confident, not feeling confident, not wanting to be putting yourself into the environment of um, you know air travel and so forth. Um, do you still see yourself um, you know, dedicated or you know really championing the diplomacy cause going forward? Uh, well, I'm still, I mean, as I said, I just restarted my, uh, my personal zine, Eternal Sunshine, so I'll have, you know, a, a few games in there that I'll be running no matter what for as long as I, uh, as long as this current lifetime of that zine. I mean, that zine I did for about almost 10 years before complaints from, complaints from my second wife caused me to decide to shut that down, uh, or I should say wind it down because I didn't. Just, just ended. I just slowly, uh, slowly wound it down until all the games were over. Uh, I don't see any reason that I'm not going to be. I've just, I've never considered myself really a champion of, of the hobby, in any way. I'm not. Um. I mean, I do diplomacy world, but like I said, you know, I'm. It's only maybe one out of every three or four issues that I have an article that I personally write. I'm more of a of a collection point. Go out there looking for material and looking for people to write material. And um, while those people who write the articles are generally the ones who are leading the charge of expanding people's knowledge of the hobby and getting people to attend uh, current or future face-to-face events and things like that. Um. I'm hoping that I'll get more, I'll have the opportunity to become more involved in some face-to-face gaming and attend a few events, although I suppose I'll be attending those under a pseudonym. I don't, uh, because people think I'm a great player since I've been around so long, but uh, really I I very rarely do that well, unless I happen to take over uh, a standby position where, where the country's doing pretty well. I don't generally play that well my mid game is particularly weak um but i haven't uh i haven't been able to correct that i or i should say i haven't put enough focus on trying to correct that um because you know in any diplomacy game most people lose so it's never really bothered me that i generally end up dead very um, very true um i think we, we kind of correct me if i'm wrong but i think we're in a similar boat where people assume because you, we run a podcast about diplomacy we must be experts when uh, we're far from it <laughs> one of the reasons i think we do this is to keep learning and to try to you know help hone our skills um, yeah i mean the tactical end of it you know is not regardless of what people think i mean you you both know that the tactical side of diplomacy is not that difficult once you uh, learn stalemate lines and support strategies and yep. uh, all the different opening strategies. Everything after that is uh, is the diplomatic side and the negotiation side. And 
that is the skill that it doesn't matter how long you play. It's part of it is personality. And, you know, if you're like Goffy and you've got that cutthroat mentality and you're always wanting to throw somebody over the side of the ship, then uh, you're more likely to succeed. Um, where if you're a especially uh, kind person, then or as we sometimes have referred them to them as if you're more of a care bear, you're going to uh, probably wind up with a knife in your back at some point in the game because you thought this game-long alliance was going to last. So, while anonymity is necessary, it's because of people's perception. They certainly aren't... It's not accurate to think that just because someone is more involved in the hobby or more involved in how long they've played that they're better at coming out with a positive result in any particular form. Mm. You mentioned uh, you mentioned Goffy, um, and you've also mentioned sometimes when certain articles come in, you go, "Yeah, this is going to make a great uh, a great addition of Diplomacy World." If you had a, I don't know, let's call it a, a hypothetical game where someone had written up an awesome article around the top players of Diplomacy over the last. Goodness knows how many years, 20, 30 years. Um, who would you imagine would be written about in that article? Well, um, part of the answer to that question would depend on what forum we're talking about in terms of top players. In my mind, when I think of top players, I generally think of, you know, tournament winners, uh, which, you know, which means that we're heading towards face-to-face players. When I'm, I'm sure there's players that have never attended a tournament that may be potentially much better players uh, than anyone that we've ever seen. Sort of uh, the way I've always felt that the people who could best do or play any sport probably never played it in their life. And, uh, you know, the best tennis players, golf players, whatever, that would have existed, never played, never tried it, never wanted to, and therefore we never saw them. And then, of course, you've also got, like, your dark horses, so people who play very, very well within the online environment and nobody knows about them. They turn up at a tournament and, you know, come second or third on a top board. That's true also. Um, And I think that the people who have skills at both face-to-face and either postal or e-postal and online forums, they're really different skill sets because the communication is done so differently. Um, but uh, you'd have to put Goffy on the list uh, simply because of his uh, all his successes. Um, he's won far too many tournaments to, um, although I've never played against him personally, uh, to not be included on that list. Um, uh, Edie Bersan, you'd probably have to put on that list um, partially just by longevity, although he's clearly uh, performed very well in a number of tournaments over the decades. I'm probably not the best person to ask the question to since I haven't played most of those people face-to-face. And the names seem to change. Um, The years pass kind of quickly, and all of a sudden I see new names that I hadn't seen before and discover that they've won, you know, three local tournaments and one national tournament somewhere, and I don't know who this person is um uh, i am happy to see that we've had some really strong play from uh from uh women in the hobby in the last 10 years 
uh, and that we're seeing a bit more uh, of them within the games. It's always been too male-centric, uh, and their skill set within the game itself it can be uh, can be more powerful or just as powerful as anybody else's. So, uh, but I probably couldn't list off the top of my head who the seven people would be. I would I would either be naming the people most recently doing very well or my mind would be going backwards to postal players that others had never heard of. Um, no, the, name, the names that have been, the names that are out there that have, you know, been around the longest and been so well known, um, including a number that, that have, you know, gone recently like Jim Burgess or Larry Perry, et cetera, weren't necessarily great players. And those are the people who I've spent the most time uh, dealing with and talking to. Um, some of them are, have been great organizers, which I've definitely appreciated. Um, but great players, um, I don't know, because I usually don't last long enough in a game to find out who's uh, who does better. I just know Goffey seems to win every time he's in a tournament, which I don't really understand because... Since Goffey always wins, why wouldn't you just attack him in spring 1901 and get him out of the top board if you're on the top board? How well, that's that, that's actually what happened in the in the uh, Melbourne Open game that uh, Kaner and I attended. I don't, I don't think Kaner was on this particular board, and I, I must put the caveat on there that Goffey was playing two boards at the time as well as still being a tournament organiser. Um, and essentially he drew Austria and I just kind of got every single person around. So I was Turkey. I think I got Russia and Italy together and just said, we just have to kill him from the beginning, otherwise he's just going to play us off. Um, and that worked literally from September 901. It was three against one, um, and we were fortunate enough that I think over in the West there was other things that were happening. Uh, and But as I said, you know, Goffey was playing on two boards and trying to also host a tournament at the same time. So he wasn't on his best, um, but it was the only way that I, I felt that, you know, we could probably deal with that because of, of he is such a significant threat. It seems to me that, um, like I said, I can't understand how he continues to win or how anybody wins on a regular basis in uh, either in clubs or in large tournaments just by name recognition factor, they they are considered threats, as we were talking about anonymity. Um, to me, it would seem that in large events, there would be more of what we used to refer to as uh, the spades factor. If you've if you've ever been a spades player, uh, the card game, which also uh, lends itself to games uh, like. Uh, the Avalon Hill game, Civilization, and uh, other games like that, where if somebody is is standing out as a leader or as a winner, everyone else should, in theory, be beating them back into submission. Um, and I think in some ways, uh, Alan Kelhammer sort of designed diplomacy that way, with the idea that players would inherently see somebody starting to do well and then work together to stop that person from doing so well within each game and that theoretically a game can go on forever because um, if the players were most concerned with stopping someone else from winning then no one would ever get that far out ahead and have secure alliances long enough to actually get to a victory 
Um, but of course, as we all know, people play for different reasons. People's motivations are different at different points in the game. And, you know, if you're like me, spite can certainly be a motivator. So there's been plenty of times where trying to get someone to change what they're doing or either ally with me or attack someone else, I've quite often, you know, I'll say been guilty of, although I don't consider it uh, an invalid strategy. I've quite often said, okay, well, you either do this or I will do whatever I can to make sure that all of my centers go to these, this other person because I'm not going to be here either way. If you're not going to do what seems intelligent and do what's best for yourself and for me, then I'm going to do what's worst for you and I don't care about surviving. Um, that strategy doesn't help win me that many games, but uh, you know, spite can be a, a great motivating factor when you want it to be. So I guess I've doomed myself if I ever am on a board with Goffey because he's going to know I'll be against him, and so now he'll make sure I'm eliminated by 1902. I'll, I'll be the first England eliminated in 1902 in tournament history. <laughs> <laughs> you, you touched on uh, a nominee. Oh, fuck, I always say that word incorrectly. Can I think it's I think it's written incorrectly. It was invented uh, correctly. So. That would be the word I mean to say. You're not saying. You're not saying it wrong. It just has. It, it never should have been said that way in the first place. So you're just <laughs> trying to conform to society's rules. Absolutely. So when it comes to that particularly difficult to say word, um, you find at the moment that some people, when they're publishing or when you're publishing in diplomacy world, will still submit and want to be published under. Um, non-diplumes, you know, which often are what they use on the online sites rather than their real life name. Um, what's your take on that? I understand why they do it, and I, um, I think the first time somebody asked me if I would allow them to do that in a general sense, I was against it, and Jim Burgess told me, "No, no, we should. It's fine. We should do it. This is the way people play now, and this is." Like I said, he was the vo- he was a uh, a voice of reason um, uh, during the during this current stint as lead uh, lead editor. Jim really um, helped keep me directed and pointed in the right direction. And he would uh, he was like, no, no, this is some people. They're, if they're anonymous on a site, they want to remain anonymous. Um, there's been other cases, of course, where people have wanted to write things anonymously. Uh, sometimes because they're being highly critical of uh, an event or a group of people or because they're going to disclose information that they don't want getting back to themselves. Um, so how, do you, how do you approach that from an editor point of view of what goes in and what goes out and doesn't get published? Yeah, well, it depends. Uh, usually it's just a question of the quality of the article. The article... Uh, seems at least moderately interesting to me or if I can see why it would be interesting to someone else um, and of course I have to keep an open mind in that of okay well there's there are people who read Diplomacy World that are very new to the hobby uh, or new to the game and you know still um, need to know whether or not moving to you know why moving to the Black Sea in Spring 01 is a good idea or a bad idea tactical wise if the article is written generally well and at least shows some kind of uh, ha- holds some type of interest 
then it probably goes in, um, especially in the current age. In the earlier period where it was a postal hobby, you had a lot of you a much I'm not going to say a higher bar, although I was about to, but it, w- it was much more frequent that some things wouldn't go in. But that was less an aspect of whether or not the article itself was fully deserving and more an aspect of the fact that issue size and number of pages were a critical factor when determining postage costs, printing costs, how much people were paying for an issue. Usually it was $2.50 an issue for uh, most of the time that I was doing the postal zine, uh, the postal version of Diplomacy World. So if you went if you added one page, you were going to have to add a second page. You had to have an even number of pages. Or at some point, uh, when I was doing it in uh, 11 inches by 17 inch pages, you'd have to. Everything had to be divisible by four. Usually, articles that you were going to that were quality, you could hold over for another issue and just tell them, "All right, well, you know, this isn't going to make it into this issue, but I'll start with it in the next issue." And um, these days, in the electronic age it's you'd be surprised that it's probably less than 10% of material doesn't fit or isn't worthy of publication in terms of what's submitted i think people probably over edit themselves and decide not to write or not to submit because they think the material they have is not up to snuff some of that eliminates material that might otherwise not go in and some of that eliminates material that would go in the only real exceptions to that rule uh, were the late Larry Peary. There were a number of articles of his that were only very tangentially tied to diplomacy that sometimes I either had to tell him, I can't publish this because it has really no tie to the hobby or to the game. Or uh, Larry had a very, uh, very bad habit sometimes of just copy and pasting source material from articles and from Wikipedia and putting it all together and calling that an article. And you'd have to say, Larry, there's just not, there's no original material in here. Um, but he never really took offense to that because it was usually one of three or four articles that he had submitted and he would either go submit it to the pouch or um, he used to publish some of the non-diplomacy material in my, my other zine, Eternal Sunshine, when I was originally running it. Um, he would r- write a lot of stuff for that as well. So there really is not a lot of material that's submitted that can't be rewritten or edited or that you can't give back to the person who wrote it and say, why don't you talk up this point and this point or uh, or eliminate this area and then send it back to me and then I'll do some editing. Most of my edit, I don't do that much editing to the uh, to the articles. They're generally, you know, 90% complete when they arrive. And if, and if people are obviously listening to this and then they're, if they're already um, readers of Diplomacy World or they want to get involved in Diplomacy World, we've obviously talked about where you can get it and where you can subscribe from it. Um, but then if they go, yeah, look, I'd like to actually contribute, um, what's the best way of at the moment of contributing and helping uh, Diplomacy World grow? Is it just the writing of it, or is there anything else that they can do to assist that would help you? Um, really, if 
aside from writing articles, which is the lifeblood of the zine and clearly the most important, it's also just spreading the word that it exists. But probably the most important job that some people do is convincing others to write articles. If you are in a local club, at a diplomacy convention, um, talking to friends in on some online community about a topic, and you don't feel that you're uh, that you have the time, the inclination, or the um, you don't feel confident enough in your own writing to write about something. If you're talking about it and interested in it, then likely other diplomacy players would be too. And if you can't uh, produce something, then the next best thing is to convince someone else to write something. Um, but you know, people are very, sometimes very hesitant to write and contribute to diplomacy world because they think that they can't or they think it won't be good enough. And sometimes it's just they forget. I mean, it's amazing to me that no matter how many times I ask people, um, hey, you know, you have a, a major diplomacy event that you uh, are a part of or that you run or that you're a part of the organizational structure of. Why are you not at least producing a one-page flyer and advertising it for free in Diplomacy World? It's free advertising. Um, we're down from, you know, we uh, at one point, I don't know, five or six years ago, we were still getting over 10,000 downloads a quarter of the new issue before the next one was produced. We've dropped some since then in the last uh, six or seven years, but we're still in thousands of uh, views. So... Uh, a lot of times an article about, you know, I've, I've tried to tell people, okay, if you've got an online community or if you've got a, an event that you run or an event that you participated at or whatever, you know, write an article about your experience or about your experience in creating this, your experience in running this, your experience in organizing the event, what you learned from organizing the event, um, uh, what the games were like, and or I always try to remind people to write about more than the board itself, write about the people, write about what else you did, write about the experience, because again, you know, diplomacy as a, you know, it's a great game as a game, but just the game itself can be, you know, kind of boring if all you're doing is playing against nameless, faceless people and it's basically just a gunboat game and you'll never be able to tie the actions of whoever's playing Italy to how they play in the next game because they're anonymous. You don't know who they are. So the best way to contribute to Diplomacy World, if you're not going to contribute your own article, is to tell the person that's doing or saying or organizing something that you see as interesting to you that, hey, you should contribute something. You should write an article about this. You should talk to Doug over at Diplomacy World or to one of the uh, editors on staff about how to take this and turn it into an article so that more people can enjoy it or be a part of it or appreciate it. And they can send money. I mean, I'll take 20s, 50s, whatever, uh, you know, whatever whatever money they want to send, I'm happy to spend on, you know, cat food or what have you. And you've got quite a list of um, co-editors there, I noticed in the most recent article, there's two vacancies. Um, there's a well a co-editor with a, a vacant position and um, 
I, I notice original artwork seems to be always, you know, empty or, you know, fill very briefly and then back to vacant. That has been um, Nemanja Simic, who I, I think was living in Serbia when he took that over. Um, he produced some beautiful covers in color, and his artwork still appears here and there. Most of, uh, if you see a nice piece of diplomatic artwork, it, it's either something I never got around to using or something I'm recycling that he had submitted a few you know years ago before he became too busy in his uh, his artistic endeavors uh, to produce things for the zine. We, uh, you know, both art and humor are two things that have been sort of tied in with the diplomacy hobby since the beginning. Um, diplomacy grew out of the science fiction uh, hobbies and science fiction zines people were writing in the late 60s um, and then um, out of uh, role-playing games Gary Gygax, the creator of uh, uh, Dungeons and Dragons was a uh, early member of the diplomacy hobby so there was a lot of uh, science fiction and fantasy players of games and appreciators and writers who have made their way through the ranks so there, back in the postal days, there were many zines that had little bits of artwork that people would send in, or that you know the uh, that the editors themselves would do. Those are probably the two areas that uh, that I would l love to see grow within diplomacy world again. Is uh, more original artwork, or uh, you know we've occasionally had people who wrote little. Uh, little comic strips that that was also something people used to do way back in the day in the postal hobby that have made their way into the diplomacy world now and then but never on a consistent basis and uh, but also humor humor is you know everyone takes themselves so seriously uh, but humor is you know, laughter I always say laughter is what keeps us young now the, the problem with humor in diplomacy world is that sometimes people don't, don't know it's humor uh, I wrote a article, uh, a humorous article about what the best variant in diplomacy history was, and it was myself and a few people that I knew from the hobby who I had never met before, including Jack McHugh that I mentioned earlier, Jack McHugh, uh, Brad Wilson, a few people from the Philadelphia area, and it was about us looking through a haunted house. It was a, it was sarcastic and humorous and us making fun of each other in the article etc um, I thought the article came out really well I don't know this was probably 10 years ago um, and then the ghost of uh, Fred Hyatt came out and was talking about how his variant that he that he designed Colonia was really the best variant and it was all supposed to be both funny and a way to introduce people to new variants they didn't know about that have been around for a long time and maybe a month after that article came out uh, Jack McHugh and I were in a game together in on some forum somewhere. I don't remember where the game was played. Somewhere online. And one of the players accused me, though, you're just going to lie with Jack because you're friends. And I said, well, I've never met Jack before. I've known him forever, but I usually attack him. I don't. He's not the greatest ally. I usually just attack him anyway uh, because he's he thinks I'm going to lie with him because I'm friends with him. And the person said, oh, no, I read about that in Diplomacy World. You, you met him. You're a liar. 
I was like, well, that article, you mean the article where the ghost came out of the wall and started talking to us? That wasn't really a, a true article. So much like things on Facebook and stuff with, with uh, sarcastic and satire sites, people thinking that it's true news, humor seems a lost art in diplomacy world as well. Even when you try to be humorous and sarcastic, somebody's going to read it as serious and true and not know the difference. Subtleties uh, often miss, miss some people. <laughs> yeah, right over their heads. But, you know, uh, that's that's sort of, I got my dad's humor in me so that usually uh, I don't care. I'll just keep being sarcastic to someone until they either catch on or it is amazing. In, and I've experienced that in playing diplomacy as well, that sometimes you can say the most outrageous or openly hostile and rude things to people and because in their mind they're thinking it's sort of a corollary to the thing about humor the opposite that you can be openly hostile to someone and they don't think you're serious because oh well he wouldn't really say that i mean that's that's rude so it must be a joke therefore it's not real and therefore it's funny and it's okay um I did kind of notice looking at some of the back issues that yeah that is a very common theme you're 100 correct that you know the both the the humor and also the um the the graphics if I can put it that way you know the drawings are always uh they're amusing they're fun um so it's surprising that some people would kind of misinterpret either that or or written articles as as being um truthful when they're clearly not speaking of like the old articles and with the archive that you have um, having a quick look through it, there seems to be like some issues where they've been just scanned into PDF, and other times they've been scanned into PDF, but they seem to be searchable, obviously with you know optical character recognition or anything like that. Do you um, do you see any opportunities there to um, make some of those uh, older ones that have just been scanned turned into something that can be um, searchable? So you know, if you're looking for the latest. You know, version of or how do you want to approach the Lepanto as an example you can kind of search through <clears throat> back issues find out what other people have done and see you know what's what you might want to call upon that would be something I would like the downside to that is that a number of the issues now we have every issue of diplomacy world uh, on the website they've all been scanned but because of the old uh, typewriter courier font that was generally used back in the pre-computer age, at the time that I was scanning those, uh, actually, for a lot of those issues, I don't have personal copies of. Walter Buchanan sent me uh, copies. Of, he sent me all of his issues in, I think, patches of 10, 20 or so, which I then had to photocopy and then scan but at that time that I was originally doing those scans, which would have been, again, about uh, 10 years ago or more for most of those much older issues, uh, the OCR software that was available had massive problems with, the, uh, with that particular typeface. It hated it. It didn't want to recognize any word. So anytime you tried to scan with OCR, uh, it would just catch every 15th word and of course anything that mentioned that uses diplomacy uh, shorthand or abbreviations or spaces uh, it would freak out over it, it the 
the uh, artificial intelligence of the OCR softwares and its learning abilities just wasn't there at the time. So I've often thought about, well, hopefully things have advanced and maybe I need to rescan some of the issues that I have and then rescan, uh, get and rescan issues that I've already scanned and posted and see if that can become searchable. Anything that I've done, um, any of the issues since, you know, about number 90, in the 90s, so for the last 60 issues, is generally searchable because it was produced in, with, using modern software. Um, so, you know, even if it was produced with, I think all the ones that I've done, in this case, they've all been done with Microsoft Word. Um, Back in, the, back in my first stint, everything was done with uh, WordPerfect. But everything, you know, in the last 60 issues or so is most likely searchable. But those bold ones, the OCR software w was just getting nauseous trying to figure out what anything was. Um, it actually came to the point where I was having, uh, I think Melinda Holly, who's a longtime postal player and still around here and there, actually typed separately some articles from individual issues like starting with issue 10 that I was then able to add to um, to the menus of old articles on the website and that I have started actually in the last month or two adding some articles from back issues to that section again um, so that while the issues themselves may not be searchable if you retype an article uh, using, you know, modern software rather than trying to OCR everything, that new typed article that you then add to the the list of back articles rather than back issues is searchable and can be picked up uh, on internet searches. Um, and in some ways, that's I think that's a good thing. The only other, the only downside besides in terms of how much work it is and would people make use of it. I try not to think about do people make use of a lot of the things that I do because if nobody's actually using them, then why am I doing it? So I don't bother thinking about if they are. But one of the downsides is if you do a search for certain things with diplomacy, hopefully you get a hit or two on uh, diplomacyworld.net and you go there and you see an issue uh, and find the article you're looking for. But my my ideal is more that if you don't know about the zine and you discover uh, the zine through a search and an article that you go and look and read through full issues rather than just finding individual articles uh, you know of the of the various periods the Walt Buchanan period or the Larry period period or whoever the uh, the editor was at the time because you'll learn a lot more about both the game and the hobby by seeing the issue as a periodical rather than a place to read one article and ignore the rest. So I kind of hope that people who search out things and then stumble into the website will be more likely to read or at least leaf through entire issues rather than just focusing on, I'll jump to page 13, here's the article I want on Italian openings and then leave it at that. Cool. Um, I'm pretty much out of questions. Kana, how about you? 
I, I guess I only really have one more question, um, and that's got to do with um, variants. Like, Diplomacy World's been a place where people have published ideas for variants um, going right back to, I think, the, the first episode. Eddie Burson, I think, published a variant um, in the very first issue. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, I might be wrong. Um, do you have a variant that's special to your heart that, that you return to again and again and again? I sort of have a family, or I'm not going to say a family, I have a list of variants that I've enjoyed playing more than others. Uh, I know that a lot of the variants that are most popular now are not necessarily variants that I am that interested in, but that's probably because my view is different or I don't want to learn the the great strategies and newer variants now. Um, unless it's a variant that really grabs me. Most of my the variants that I've really enjoyed are uh, are usually just map variants. Um, Balkan Wars um, Balkan Wars 6 is one variant that uh, I always seem to drag up into Plumlisa World every few years to try to introduce it to people again because it's such a fast and cutthroat variant um, that ends so quickly. And so there's that one. Um, I've mentioned Colonia, which some people don't like because it's a global variant, but some people aren't big fans of it because there really aren't any stalemate lines in the variant, although I'm not a huge fan of stalemate lines either. In in Not in large variants anyway. I prefer no stalemate lines in large variants, although I think stalemate lines are critical to know in the standard game. Um, but probably... My favorite variant, which is uh, the strangest variant ever invented, and I think only two or three games have ever been actually played to completion, and it kind of has to be played either uh, has to be played in a publication, actually played in a zine or an e-zine, is deviant diplomacy, where players write new rules, um, vote on rules, rules then adopted and carry forward from issue from turn to turn. Um, the game becomes just insane. Um, it becomes worse than, in terms of complication, than any uh, tax audit or here in the U.S. the recent Iowa caucus nightmare where people can't figure out who won and who voted for who. That's how deviant diplomacy devolves eventually because there are so many crazy rules about units appearing and disappearing, spaces combining. Um, things that completely nonsense. It's sort of a uh, trip through the looking glass or into Alice in Wonderland by the time the game gets late in the game. It bears no resemblance to a regular diplomacy game. Um, and since it's it were, since it involves so much imagination and also humor um, in terms of the rules that people come up with and just how ridiculous and crazy they are, uh, that's it shows a lot of the personalities of the people that are playing. And so that's probably, as I said, my favorite variant, although it's only been played to completion, I think, a few times. I played, I've run it to completion twice, and I think, uh, I think the inventor of the variant, Pete Goggin, uh, in his zine, Paralandra, ran it to completion once. Um, so it's not a great variant for when you get some friends together, but um, 
it is a gr- it is a really fun variant for uh, just for fun and confusion, which is the other aspect. I'll just real quickly say that's the aspect I've mentioned that knowing the personalities of people, but the all my work on the archives uh, of uh, the postal diplomacy zine archives and uh, Stephen Agar's work on the UK zine archive. Um, if you go back and look at older zines, the one thing that is really missing from modern games, especially in modern online games, there isn't even a place for it, is uh, is press. Press now means something completely different to players than it did when I play when I started playing. So all the fun back and forth writing and the fictional long stories people would begin and then carry forward throughout a game. Um, and publish in the press of a game and in the results that really differentiated that period of diplomacy history to now. So if there was some variant that uh, that would help stimulate people to be a little more personally creative, then that would probably be a variant I'm going to enjoy a lot more than at this stage in my gaming, the nuts and bolts of learning the strategies for a new uh, a new variant. There are a lot of great variants that have now kind of uh, been forgotten. They're just not played that much. Um, I mentioned Balkan War 6. Woolworth was a a fun variant that uh, never got that popular, but a lot of people played it, um, where there's ten powers instead of five, and each player controls two powers, one publicly and one anonymously, so you never know who controls what powers. Um, that sort of mix-up thing, uh, I still tend to favor the variants that I first cut my teeth on and learned about versus the newer variants, which may be much more playable than some of the old ones, but I was less interested in what's the most balanced variant versus what's the most fun to play. Right. Well, thank you very much. Um, Doug, that's, that's been a very, very interesting uh, conversation. I've learnt um, a great deal. I think Kane has probably learned a great deal. Um, I think he uh, was asleep most of it, actually. No. <laughs> no, we had a coffee beforehand. He'd be right. <laughs> yeah, right, coffee. Like I said, sure, he had a coffee. We know what that, you know, it was either an Irish coffee or something entirely different. It was not, it wasn't fully caffeinated. <laughs> with a dollop of Kahlua in it. <laughs> well, you can't go wrong that way. Or some Bailey something, you know. So um, thank you very much for your time again, Doug. So just in case anyone missed it, if the people want to download copies of Diplomacy World, subscribe, uh, offer their services, um, where should they go? Uh, the first place they should go is uh, diplomacyworld.net, which is where they can get all the issues. And then um, they can email me at diplomacyworld at yahoo.com. That's my when they write when they hear back from me, it'll probably be from one of my other Yahoo addresses because they all tie together and I always, I inevitably forget to change where I'm sending it from. Um, but uh, there or there's um, there's a diplomacy world uh, Facebook group that also has all the new issues uploaded to it and where they can, ask for the mailing list that they can then be on to be notified of when new issues are coming out. Um, 
but diplomacyworld.net is definitely the uh, the place to go to get almost all the information they're going to want to get. Uh, Facebook would be the secondary place to go look. Cool. Well, thank you again very much for your time, Doug. And um, yeah, look, looking forward to the next edition. Mm, well, I'm sorry I didn't have more interesting things to say, but uh, you know I'm not a very interesting person. What am I going to do? That's why I haven't had a date in almost two years. Oh, any uh, attractive, uh, intelligent women out there um, uh, looking to... They like playing diplomacy. Uh, no, they don't have to play diplomacy. They have to tolerate the game, I guess, but they don't have to play. <laughs> I'm, I'm a spoiler, so I, do, I would do terrible playing diplomacy with somebody that, you know, that I was in a relationship with because I would always let them win, male or female. I would let – if I was – you know, I would let them – you know, so if they were – you know, if I cared about them that much, no, you go ahead. You you take Belgium. No, you can have Belgium. I'm giving it to you. Go ahead. Oh, that's the, love. <laughs> the awesome promised Belgium, I would give it to them. I don't care. I'll the sooner I die, the sooner I can make sure that uh, you need another drink, honey. No problem. I'll go get it for you. So once I'm out of the game, it's not it's not a problem. I have more time to take care of her. So I'm a giving person. So somebody come help, let me give, please. Somebody out there, help. <laughs> Good stuff. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, well, Doug. Y'all have a good day, and I'm going to go have some uh, whiskey, I think. And we're back. Cheers. <laughs> oh, we didn't get the new drink. Which is- <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that was that was interesting. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of work that goes into you know running like, like the zine magazine publisher publication there's there's actually a lot that goes into that like mm. there's chasing people up obviously but you know collating it and keeping your spirits up and getting it out there I think it was funny at one stage what, wasn't he saying that there was one episode one edition that he like only had one or two articles and it was like about a day or two until it was due to go out yeah and then they all came in at once so you know <laughs> well done that's right. And you're going to be apparently writing a new article for it. Yeah, I thought I would. You know, I think I'll write one around the sea lanes concept. You know, just where it came from, how long it's been running, pros and cons, what variants are, you know, use it now. Great idea. Because it's been picked up by a number of variants outside of, you know, my initial ones where I popped them into. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. No, it's got to, you've got to, be, you've got to be happy about that. Yeah, I'm a little bit of proud. A little bit of proud, but I mean, honestly, this thing's been going for 46 years. I know it's incredible, isn't it? That's amazing. It's almost as old as a hobby. Actually, no, it's not quite 20 years because it was Young. started in the 70s and the game started in the 50s. Yeah, so what's that? Like 60, 60 plus? plus years the game's been going on. Wow, more than that 70, 1950 something, wasn't it? 50, 60. No, it's only about 60, 60 something years, just over 60 years. Okay. This thing has started about 58 or 59 or something. It just goes to show the genius of the game. Love it, absolutely love it. So much things about it. So, um, it's really good to know that, you know, that obviously that the uh, diplomacy world's still going strong. Um, some really good insights there. Did you get, what did you pick up from the interview? Well, so there's a historic perspective yep. to it, you know, like once upon a time, in a in a in an age many, many decades ago, the diplomacy hobby was more united 
because it had to be united in the world of postal scenes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And to me, like, hearing about that, it just feels, sounds like such a, like a galaxy far, far away from the perspective of now, where it, 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 it's really become an internet-based phenomenon. Plus, some islands are face-to-face around the place. That's really not too different to what's happened across a whole range of everything in the world, isn't it? You know, you used to have like only three or four TV channels and now there's, you know, infinite TV channels once you started looking at YouTube and all those other things as well that are out there. Yeah, internet, the great disruptor of things, hey. Um, Having said that, I mean, I'm sure the, the, the hobby as a whole, if you were to say, okay, how many players in the world play the game of diplomacy now versus play the game of diplomacy in 1980s so you know and it's different though because the world's changed as well so like if you went say uh, 1960s or 70s you know sure there were complications in the world back then but probably life wasn't as quite as crazy and hectic and manic as it is I don't know maybe I'm making shit up Less in some mission, mission so you know sure. you have the ability and the way things were back then was it wouldn't be anything to kind of take you know hypothetically let's let's be stereotypical here it's a 1950s or 1960s or 70s you know Kaner you turn to Mrs Kaner and you say um, see you later dear I'm off to play diplomacy for the day <laughs> and uh, she say no problem I'll uh, you know you have a wonderful time and nowadays you just can't a lot of people don't have the luxury to be able to block out a whole day of gaming and in fact it's well I'll fit it in when I can and that's the advantage of a lot of the online platforms you can kind of pop on and put in your orders and do your communication when you've got time and come back and check it and whatever like that so I think the nature of the game the fundamentals is obviously all the same but the way it's played has changed and And that obviously then impacts on not just you know the fact that there was a limited number of zines in the past. Well, actually, no. It's had. I must admit, he was talking about all these different zines that were out there. Yeah. And it's had, it actually made me think. Well, there was almost like a. He was almost arguing against his own position on that because there was a proliferation of them, and then it obviously yes. started condensing down. And now it's kind of the whole environment and the media that's delivered in. Whether it's you know, the diplomacy briefing with the e- weekly email or our podcast or you know the diplomacy podcast or you dip know pouch or, dip pouch or yep, you know stuff some going guys on putting discord out yeah, or discord or putting out their own youtube channels and yeah yes i think it's 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 the game i think as a result is better for it but i think that his point is no one really has you can't kind of go oh that's the one place i go for information everything i need yeah. to know about diplomacy and We've never aimed to be that, and I don't think anyone's even aimed to be that nowadays. I don't think the ecosystem would really support it. Do you think? Well, what would you do? You'd have to have, like, you know, a a staff of, you know, people permanently writing and producing content on diplomacy. and and, if um, I was a multi-billionaire. Seeing that there's no (laughs) money in this shit, and it's all done from the, you know, the goodness of our own heart. Yeah. I mean, still in, in, in many ways, it's similar to what zines were. They were doing it out of the goodness of their own art. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or, or I think his um, earlier point was, you know, well, people would start these things because it's their way of finding out 
who's out there and you know yes you can start playing the game because you don't have anyone locally to play with because you start playing by post and then you might strike it lucky and work out oh there's some local people I'll just get things going absolutely anyway so what else did you find there what, what else did you sort of take away maybe um, I've actually found it interesting he talked a little bit about some of the other um, variants at some stage you know like Colonia and a few others that I had never even heard of yeah I haven't heard of Colonia yeah, I had a look, quick look at it on the variant bank or whatever, and it, it's there, but it's um, similar to similar to a lot of other variants that are out there already, but just a yeah. little bit different, you know what I mean? Okay. So if you can imagine from a colonist point of view, you know what I mean? And Is it a world map? Um, it was a world map. I think it was Asia and Africa from memory. So it didn't include the Americas. Europe? Yeah. So it's more like, you know, the whole European powers colonising bits of the world. But it was actually, the thing I looked at, maybe I saw a different wrong version, but it grated a little with me because, like, it had certain countries owning, sorry, certain European powers owning colonies that weren't correct. Like, Australia's colonies were owned by the Dutch and things like that, which is like, I don't like that. Maybe in an alternative history, but... Well, the Dutch, no. The Dutch were always in the East Indies, in the in, in Indonesia. Sure, give them that. Oh, they also charted Tasmania long before the English. Van Diemen's Land. Yes. And um, William Dampier and all those dudes on the west coast of Australia. That's right, you know, they knew about the west coast of Australia. And, uh, lots didn't they Dutch, do, like, the whole of Gulf of Carpentaria and the whole thing up there with the Torres Strait and everything? Yeah, they were aware of that area. You know, lots of Dutch shipwrecks on the west coast of Australia. That's because they had to go all the way down south to catch the trade winds to get to up go to underneath the Cape to, of Good Hope. So they're trying to get up to Indonesia yeah. and they, they missed and they hit Australia. Like, oh, yeah, fuck. that's essentially what happened. You know, they went down to catch those yep. you know, those um, westerlies in the roaring forties. Yep. You know, and they just misjudged when they had to turn north. <laughs> and you know, the poor buggers who went a bit too far hit Australia and you know hence the shipwrecks. That's right. But anyway, um, yeah. So and look, just the other thing that people wouldn't wouldn't know because we kind of did this a little bit off tape. But we also just had a quick chat because of um, Doug's knowledge of uh, a number of people who are obviously involved in the hobby. We did say, or I said to him, look, you know, who do you, who else do you think would be would have something to contribute and have a really good story to tell like in an interview or whatever like that on the show and he gave a number of names well a number like a list a mile long yep yep so um, we will start following those up so I think we've got plenty of good future interviews based on those ideas uh, I actually haven't mentioned to you I'll put something up on the Twitter account uh, about a couple of weeks back saying hey does anyone have any suggestions for potential people to interview oh yeah yep and um there was a number of people saying agreeing. I think it might have actually been. Um, fuck, it was. I can't remember who it was. But basically, suggestion of the um, WDC 2020 and the guy who's coordinating that at Carnage. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So, I think Get that's on another one we need to start getting a hold of and start planning for. I think so. When's that? October, isn't it? November. November. You were talking about maybe, maybe being over there because Mrs. Kaner was going to be over there, Probably and you're going to wing it. Not. But you reckon not happening now? at this stage. No. She, she will be going over to the US to see her sister. But yep. Yeah. I'll probably end up being stuck at home on that one. Oh, well. Oh, well. We'll probably have a game at your place. <laughs> <laughs>
drinks of Kona's. Um, yeah, anyway, I mean, I thought it was a good interview all up. Yeah, got a lot out of it, to be perfectly honest. And you know, it actually inspired me, like I said, to well, maybe contribute. I guess. Yes. You know. I, I will mention very quickly, I talked to us about Colonia. Um, I, I thought it was weird, not weird. It would never be my pick to say Balkan Wars as an actual variant. Not in a million years. No. <laughs> so, I think I may have played it once. It didn't really float my boat, but, you know. It's out there, you know, every... It takes a world... It takes many different types of people to make the world go around. And um, I think I'm... Oh, sorry, you go? No, no, and, I, yeah, like I was saying, it's not a variant that I'm... I would ever decide to become partially fond of. Yeah, but, you know. I am interested, actually, I need to go back and re-listen to what he said about deviant diplomacy. Because when he was describing it, I kind of had a bit of an idea where it was going, but I think I need to listen to that one again. Oh, it's kind of like you invent rules as you go along and vote on them. Like, let's say, you know, you, seven players, Yep. Yep. and um, you're Italy, and you put forward a proposal that Paris has a tunnel that goes to Munich. Oh, okay. You know. Was that what it was the man? And, and then everyone votes on it. Russia and France decide to, you know, Russia and Germany decide, no, no, we don't want that to happen. But everyone else votes on it to happen, and therefore it happens. Ah. Yeah, and therefore, then it becomes a gotcha. rule from gotcha. that point on. Okay, okay. Yeah. Right, okay, that's good. I didn't work that out. That's an interesting take on things. Well, like you said, you could only play that on email or postal. I reckon you can play it face-to-face. Oh, face-to-face. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you couldn't do You couldn't it play it on web dip as, as a standard Play dip, V-dip or anything like that. Yeah, no. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a once-off game. You'd never be able to repeat that game again. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I think you need another wine there. Ambi? I may indeed. Three closet? Mm-hmm. Cheers. Back again. Cheers. Same Shiraz. Same beer. Same beer. Yep. This is this is a nice this is a nice drop. This is a good two supply center opening. Yeah, my my beer's like a solid mid game. Yeah. But I think my two supply centers are like one is like it's like okay, so it's almost like an Italian opening. Where you know you're gonna get one. That's guaranteed. Yeah. But then you get this pleasant surprise where you pick up another one, which you never expected. How would that work with How'd that work with Italy? What, you take Marseille? Yeah, you take Marseille or you take um, Trieste. Trieste. You could conceivably get... Or maybe a cheeky, instead of taking... Okay, this is what it's more like. A cheeky Munich. No. <laughs> I hadn't thought of a cheeky Munich. I think, actually, I think a cheeky, cheeky Munich's worth more pain than it's worth. Because <laughs> you can't hold the fucker. Um, no, I was thinking more on the lines of maybe instead of getting Tunis in um, the fall, you, get you in fact get Greece. And you get either, you know, um, Turkey or Austria to help you win. An ideal situation would be to take Greece and Trieste at the same time. But that's not oh, no, no. And the super cheeky way would be to, <laughs> get, to get Austria support you into Greece whilst you take <laughs> That's what this wine tastes like. Okay, that's, that's, that's like a good wine. 
Anyway. <laughs> oh, how bad would you feel if you were Austria on that one? Yeah, you'd feel really, really <laughs> pissed off. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so that's the interview. Okay. Put yes. Put a bow on that one. So we've got um, oh, a, a bit t- of local news. Have we? What's our local news? Oh, Australian well, news. Australian news. Yeah, so I think we've talked about it in the book before where we've been, uh, we've agreed and we kind of, you booked the tickets for yes. um, the Melbourne Open, although the Melbourne Open has been, the Move. dynamic has changed. Yeah. yeah, so I think with um, a lot of the shit that's been going down in, in southern Australia, uh, fires and, and everything else, real life stuff, um, uh, Goppy's moved the Melbourne Open from March through to is it December now? Not sure on the exact date. I think it's December. Yep. And uh, Mel Call is instead having the same date for Poppycon. Poppycon's coming back. Poppycon! Awesome. She was speaking about that last year. She was, actually. Yeah. Last year? Yeah, it was last year. Yeah. yeah. So there we are. Okay. So we'll be going to Poppycon instead. So it's still a... Um still a, an event still an event it's still a proper tournament. tournament yep still points to be won or lost and this time it's in Mooney Ponds not um, CBD Melbourne CBD Melbourne still happy yeah 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 very good so we've got those two games coming up we've got the Cane Toad Classic happening in May yes. details still being nutted out with tournament director Tony Collins and we'll we will let people know Yes, he's been in negotiations with somewhere for a venue, but it uh, kind of didn't quite work out the way we originally planned. Yeah, and, fell through it last second, so yeah. we're looking for another one. That's right. Yep, which we'll follow. Um, but if you are thinking of coming to Queensland in, in May when it's nice and warm and everywhere else in Australia it's freezing cold... You're more than welcome to come and play a game of diplomacy. We will, we will have it. We just need to kind of find a venue. Bring your fedora and pipe and... Be a, a diplomatic person of le- leisure. Yeah, we need to kind of organise something a little bit better with. Once we've got the venue, I think. Yeah. We'll then kind of um, decide on, and, and I think Tony's got some ideas around the the tournament gameplay. Get that out and start getting people to commit so that we can actual dates. Well, we've got the actual dates. We've got the dates. We get people yeah. to turn up, so we've actually got enough to run the boards. Hopefully, we can get at least two boards going. That would be good. I'd be happy with two boards. Um. Look, it's up to you, Amby. I wanted to talk about um, maybe some stuff around for newbies. Oh, yeah. also around the grounds. Sure. What do you want to do first? Well, let's do stuff for newbies. Newbie stuff. Okay. Newbies. Um, so, for this this newbie recurring, semi-recurring? Yeah, every episode or two we do it. Um, for newbies, I thought we'd talk about trust. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, that was your idea. I wanted to do backstabbing first, but no, no. Trust is the more fundamental, we decided. I think you've got to have trust before you can stab, because otherwise you can't stab where there is no trust. Yeah. Otherwise you it's need to just... Reco- yeah, you need to recognise when to trust. I think I think a lot of new players get hooked up, hooked on the, un- the, the thinking that everyone is going to backstab you at any point given the first opportunity yes yeah whereas the element of trust will give you a much greater ability to expand on the board because you can leave borders open you can demilitarise it between yourself and another country um, and focus on a third country to attack 
if you've got that trust between yourself and a neighbour. Yep. Yeah, which will obviously put you in a better stead in the in the, in the game. So the question here for a new player is, what do they do when it comes to making some decisions around trust and how do they build trust with others? How do they make a decision that they can potentially trust someone? Is there any telltale signs that make you think this one's someone's telling me that I can work with them, but I'm really not sure? How do I then manage expectations on on that trust? Yeah, it's probably a lot of questions there. I have to say, for me, it took me a long while to really get the hang of trusting other players in this game, particularly on in the online environment. Yeah. In face-to-face, you can sort of make a judgment call about that person. You know, are they making eye contact with you? Are they kind of brushing you off? Or are they not really paying attention to what you have to say? Yeah. Yeah, are they are they actually deep listening? Or are they just, yeah, 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 and say something that's not related to what you've just been saying? You know, what are you talking about again? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so those sort of tells... You know, those are tells. Those are, those I think there's, tells. there's other tells as well, which is not only what they're saying to you, but what they're doing elsewhere. So if they're, what they're doing on the board. What they're doing on the board. Are they kind of spending a lot of time talking to other players who happen to also maybe share a border with you? Are they kind of maybe you know, talking between each other, pointing at the map, maybe occasionally looking over at you? <laughs> I don't know. At so that, that point in time, you start yeah. going, hmm, I probably can't trust that player. Oh, the other player is with. So, how, so then you need to kind of think about, well, how would you approach that then? Do you play a little bit more defensive? Do you then start reaching out to, you know, a another player who happens to border that other player? And, and you it, start building, developing trust with a, a partner who is not on your borders, but maybe a, a, a neighbour removed. Before we delve too deep. So that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So sorry, we, had, we just we just had a conversation off tape where uh, Kane has suggested one player and went, oh, actually, no, I hadn't thought about him. Yeah, he was very untrustworthy, and I said someone else back, and he went, oh. yeah, <laughs> and okay. then you just started laughing. <laughs> but away from the face-to-face mm. space, or just more generally, how what other tells can you sort of... gives you an indication of trust. I, okay, you, but I, no, no. My, I, my personal view is, particularly in the online environment, is, and it's, it's, there's no long and hard rule, but I find if a player spends the time articulating options, working them through, spending time with you, that's usually, not always, but usually a good sign that they might be legitimate. Well, at least they're listening to what you have to say. Yeah. yeah. Um, versus someone who kind of gives you... Yep, that sounds good. I'm on board. All those type of things. Instantly, I go, eh, you're saying you're on board, but I don't think you really are. I don't think I can trust you as much as somebody who's kind of working. And probably the issue is when they start working through options with you. So they may come up with, hey, how, how about you do X, Y, Z? And you go, eh, I like the X and the Y. Instead of doing Z, let's kind of switch it around this way. And they come back with you, and you have a bit of a talk around it. That makes you think, Okay, this this is my get somewhere. It's more likely to build trust at that point. Yeah. Is it about building trust, or is it about building an understanding of how much that player knows about the game, right? Yeah. Like like sometimes 
I will have you know they're, they're those conversations, but there's there's an obvious flaw in a suggestion. Right? Some, I'll do that often. I'll sometimes do that to other players as well. Make a suggestion with an obvious flaw in it, as a way to kind of Ooh. is that person clever enough to pick up that tactical error? Do I want to ally with that person if they don't pick that up? I hadn't thought of it that way. I would have thought of it the other way, which is you're deliberately maybe putting in an error to get them to come back with, to show that they understand what's going on and starting a dynamic... I suppose it's the same thing, but in a different way. It's just a way of starting that, that, that tactical discussion. But once you're in that tactical discussion, I guess, that's where trust kind of grows. Yep. Yeah. So let's say you're England, I'm France. Okay. Right? We've been in this scenario just recently. Have we? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it was a gunboat. Now, we can get to that later about trust and, and gunboat games. But anyway. That's another kettle of fish, right? But let's say you're England, I'm France. What, what would be, from your perspective as England, me as France, to say to make you think, yeah, I can trust him not to move to the English Channel? Would it be no comment of the English Channel whatsoever, or would it be a firm agreement that we don't move? I don't move to the English Channel, or would it be let's bounce in the English Channel and then you can see where my movements, my other units are doing, and you can see from there that I have no intention of going your way. Uh, overwhelmingly, I would go to the latter. Yeah, the bounce, the bounce, mainly because it gives me the confidence and the security that everything's cool. That I'm not going to be threatened that way. Yep. Um, it's obviously a downside behind that because it limits both of us. Yes. But sometimes, and I've been thinking about this because I went back and listened to the, uh, the when I was doing the editing for the last episode when we talked about um, openings, I think. And we talked about ideal openings and things. And I'll use... It doesn't matter if we're doing France or Germany or any of those players that potentially could get three supply centres in an opening. I think it's probably a bad thing to get three supply centres in an opening because it automatically paints a target on your back. Oh, yeah. So is it better in fact to, you know, um, you know tie, deliberately tie your arm behind your back to make sure that you don't get too strong but do it in a way that you can kind of build a mutually securable border through a bounce and it doesn't matter whether we, the issue would be if you're France and you have England coming to you saying hey uh, let's bounce the English Channel and Germany comes to you saying uh, let's bounce in Burgundy yeah or okay 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 you're France I'm England what do I need to tell you to get you to convoy my army in Wales into Belgium in in autumn 1901. Yeah, we talked about this last time around. You've already said that you're going to do that if I'm England and you're France. You never said the other way around. So let's flip it around I, I, the other way. I'd love to see an opening with... Sorry, we're just on a, on a total tangent. I'd love to see England get three centres as an opening. I've never actually seen them. It's, it's possible but I've never seen it done. So apart from the um, the fun of being able to achieve it... To say that you've done it. Yeah. Um, 
or more to the point, you're England, I'm France. What can I say to say to give you trust in me that I want to see England do this? Yes. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah, because automatically you go, oh, well, hang on. He's, he's, he's obviously drunk Kool-Aid because why, why would France want me to get free? But, you know, if I was Germany or Russia and all of a sudden I see France, you know, convoying England into Belgium <laughs> whilst England has also then made landfall in Norway and Denmark or Holland. And, and it's got it, yep. Um, yeah, what would you do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you try and bounce, you try and bounce Russia in Sweden. Only Russia's moved from the Baltic Sea to no, no, moves from the Gulf of Bosnia, Bosnia to um, God, the Baltic Sea. Not the, Sweden. No, Livonia. No, no, down Baltic Sea. Baltic Sea. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. So Russia's let Germany into Sweden and moved to the Baltic Sea to let England into Denmark. Yeah. Yeah, you'd be shitting bricks if you're if you're Germany, hey. Yeah, you would be. You'd be like, okay, all right, everyone's out to get me. <laughs> but what would be? This would be like, you know, if, if not only do you get England and France doing that, but you manage to convince Russia to go, as you said, full force full, yeah. down the Baltic Sea, maybe also moving into Livonia um, or Cilicia. Cilicia or Cilicia. Sorry, Prussia or Cilicia. <laughs> what we need to do, one of us draws France or England, Ty draws Germany. Oh, yes. And then we just work with... Whoever's Russia. Whoever's Russia. <laughs> but we digress. Yeah, no, yes. That, 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 so that's actually, no, actually, no, but, but actually, that's one thing that can build trust, I think, in a face-to-face game less so in an online environment is that dynamic of let's try something else let's try something crazy you know what I mean yeah and if you kind of feel there's a certain amount of this like a gut feeling isn't it you know what I mean that you kind of go yeah I think he's being legit or she's being legit I want to give it a go yeah I think that's more likely than somebody's just being difficult with not difficult but Hedging their bets. If, if a player's hedging their bets, I don't trust them, which is terrible because, unfortunately, way too often I hedge my bets, so they probably don't trust me. Yeah. So it comes back to that fundamental, how do you build trust? Mm. Yeah. So you have to recognise what is untrustworthy to you about other people and then recognise, well, what is it about my... What is it about my personality or my approach yep. that can be seen as untrustworthy to other people? But, I mean, I think there's also one way to, to gather trust is a self-sacrifice. So yes. you think about when we talked to Eric and he talked about um, that modern borders concept of Italy. Yes. So if, you're, if I'm Italy and you're Austria... And you say, hey, how about you come into Trieste? We'll kind of have a situation where you'll kind of stop at that point. I'll focus east, you focus west. If you were Italy and I came to you and said that, what would you say? 
Would you go, yep, good, I can work with this player, or you go, he's a, he's a dickhead, I'm going to just eat him up from the inside? I'd, I would want that player to explain why that Italian player thinks that's a good idea. Yep. Because it is, in my mind, right. it's so, and then kind of crazy talk. So, yeah. no, I recognise, I, I can see the strategic value, but I'd want that player to explain to me why they want that to happen. Does that yeah. make sense? Like no, if, no, I totally agree, because yeah. I think if they did that, and it doesn't matter if we're talking about that example or anything else, that's kind of... the reason, it could be like a double bluff. Like, Italy could be going, yeah, I'm just going to hold my army in Venice. Yep. Right? Because I know that'll tie up that fleet in Trieste, and I'm actually making an alliance with Turkey. Yeah? Yep. So it could be like this double bluff situation where you're like, oh, hang on, is this actually a good thing to do? How do I trust that player? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it's a full circle. Yeah. So you'd want them to actually spell out the strategic value as opposed to just saying, hey, let's do this, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Yeah. That's a good thing for the next one, like strategic value, talking. Strategic value what? For the next newbie segment. Like yeah. What, what is it you want to hear if someone is talking about strategic considerations? Ideas, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. So we'll do that one next. We're going to get to stabbing one day, Kana. Don't worry. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> the name of the... Well, is it, is it, though, is it what... Is it the nature of the game, stabbing? Or is it a thing that happens? I think they're one and the same, aren't they? It would, let's put it this way. Well, we go back to... How can um, you win diplomacy without stabbing someone? Have other people stab each other? And just mop them up? But by you mopping them up, you by default have to breach trust, don't you? Well, what about if you... Unless they have... Everyone happens to invite you into the supply centres. That's possible. It is technically possible. Incredibly unlikely. In fact, I'd say nay, impossible. <laughs> Okay, you could play the game. Here's one of your final ideas about going to a game and going, hey everyone, I've got this really crazy idea. Everyone's going to love it. you just got to throw me your supply centres, invite me in. I'm not stabbing you, you invite me in. No one is going to know what the fuck's going on. And you have all these conversations with everyone else. And then all of a sudden you own the board. Um, But in all seriousness, you could do, you could... Okay, so stabbing Liverpool into Smyrna. No, 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 no. But but stabbing a player is breaching trust. Like you you are yeah. you are breaking a trust. Now you could play the game in such a way as to have never made a commitment that you're breaking when you take another player's supply centers. Okay, so... So technically you're not stabbing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, Does I, that make sense? Yes, I, it makes sense. Yeah. We've talked about this. I can't remember who it was. We've said this probably about three or four episodes back. Ira? Yeah, it was Ira. Correct. Yes, thank you very much. Um, around that idea of, well, if you're not, in fact, stabbing, you're being up front with them, but they've misinterpreted what you've said. Yeah, you leave that... Ambiguity language. Yeah. Yeah. And so you could do it. You can, you 
can do it. So, um, whilst I don't want to get down to the whole stabbing thing, because that's a story in itself. That's another, yeah. What do you do in trying to regain trust? Oh, after a... After a stab. Oh. So either you've been stabbed, how do you potentially re-trust that buyer, or trust them if you never did, or alternatively, you've stabbed someone, but you want to kind of make it up. See, that's where the nature of sacrifice comes in, right? Okay, you've stabbed someone, I say I've stabbed you, Yep. Andy, and I've committed all my forces, and then another player stabs me, and it'll be fatal if I continue my stab against you. Yep. What do I do? Yep. Well, I would actually throw the centres that I've taken off you to you. I'd say, okay, they're yours. I would disband my units on your border as much as possible to try and get units towards the guy who's just a staff mate who's at my existential threat. Yep. And hope that that provides enough of not so much trust but a a mutual understanding that I am doing this for my survival and hopefully you'll find it in your heart yep. to keep me in your in the game as like a janissary or mercenary units or depending on how harsh that stab happens to be, you know how Yeah. That that would be my immediate response. I think the only thing I would probably do in that circumstance is um, which would be different is try to negotiate, okay look, I'm gonna as as part of my good faith, yes, I've done wrong, I admit that. You know, I'd like you to have these supply centres, but I need the supply centre in the short term to be able to defend against this attack. I'd probably make the argument to let's say for example, oh, yeah, you try and sell it so that you yeah, know, so like if it, he does take all of my units, he's going to go on to win. Yes, yeah, so if you're like France, that. you've taken London off me, and all of a sudden Germany starts just smashing the shit out of you, or Italy, or something like that. Yeah, I'd probably be going, okay, well, I'm going to disband London, but can let's make a deal that um, I'll hold the supply centre for you know a year. By then, I'll be able to recover my position. You can march on in and have it back at Hunky-Dory. I'd probably try that, but I think your other offer, which is the magnanimous, you know, hey, just take it, is more they're likely both, to have both, success. They're both equally feasible, depending on the type of player you're talking to. Know your opponents. Um, the other thing that I've seen happen is someone's gone in for a stab, they're doing quite successful on the stab, and then that next person stabs them. Right, I've seen it where that initial stabber has then made an alliance with the person who's stabbing them, right? So that they can continue their initial stab and take over that initial. Yeah, no, 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 no. I've lost you totally. Okay, so all right, an example, right? Let's say um, Austria stabs Russia. Yes, right does quite well out of it but Turkey stabs Austria right yeah I've seen it where in this hypothetical Austria then allies with Turkey for the survival instead of trying to negotiate with Russia for a defensive line against Turkey gotcha okay yeah thank that's you that's what I'm trying the to exam- say the example helps yeah other, other more astute listeners probably understood you the first time but after a couple of After wines. After a couple of wines. Yeah. Speaking of which... Yeah, we're getting 
getting a bit low. Is there any more trust stuff we need to talk about, do you reckon? No, I think we kind of covered it. Mm. You know, it's a fundamental human trait. But then... Oh, can I say gunboat? Yeah. How do you trust in gunboat? Oh. So, part of the trust, because there's no communication in an online gunboat game, I feel, is that whole throwing love you know the support hold things or support moving somebody from one location to another is just at least sending a telltale sign that you want to work with them that can often be a good um, I suppose catalyst I to think, building yeah. trust I think it's important to remember with all gunboat games is that you've got a finite amount of units yep yeah so bringing up the big map and having a look and seeing what each unit has actually ordered, specifically ordered. Even bringing up the, you know, the, 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 the written command of what each unit has done can really give you an insight as to what that try player is trying to say with their units. Yeah. Yeah. So it could be like a, a support order, like a convoy order that's never going to work, but it gives you a reading as to where that player is trying to target yes yeah 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 or it could be provided uh, it's technically feasible technically feasible yeah what would be an example of that okay you're England you want to well let's, no, let's say you're Russia you're in Norway right yes but Italy is your main concern and you're trying to telegraph that to England right and it just so happens you know you might you might order army in Norway moves to Rome by a convoy it's never going to happen in a gunboat game but it telegraphs that information to the people who are looking for it that Russia is actually looking at attacking Norway uh, attacking Italy yep England, I really just want to be mates with you. you but the I mean? challenge there is, obviously Gunboat is, I assume, always played online. I don't know many people play Gunboat in a face-to-face game because it defeats the purpose. Yeah. But in that scenario, well, you would require... Yeah. Okay, so if you're trying to get... Russia was trying to send a message of Norway to Rome, it would technically only work if you had fleets in North Sea, English Channel, MAO... Western Med, Tyronean Sea. Here's the disadvantage of... That's within VDIP and WebDIP. The yeah. system physically won't let you. Yeah. In PlayDIP it does. PlayDIP it does. Play by email it does. Play by mail it does. Backstable, I assume, would probably Backstab also do it. Does. it. Yeah. Yep, you can telegraph it that way. So, so it again, depends on the platform. system that you're on. Yeah, yeah. the platform. Yeah. Um, one other last thing I just remembered, which is... Um, probably less a, a gunboat thing but it can be a gunboat thing is that concept of building trust strangely enough through strength so mutually assured destruction kind correct of yeah. yeah so one thing I've sometimes had success with not always I'd say it's about 50-50 is where you start working with a player and usually I must admit this tends to work better on one of those bigger maps like um Europa Renovatio or Divider States where um, you tr- they can work on smaller maps where you basically can work out okay if you put this combination of units 
um, I'll use it in the classic sense. Let's say you've got a um, uh, Russia's got a fleet in Barents, um, um, Barents, Norway, and Saint P. Yeah, maybe. Actually, it's a bad example. So I don't know what's on my head. Basically, what I'm trying to say is you kind of coordinate amongst players that you've all got the same amount of units clustered in an area that are support holding so nobody can actually break through. And provided you've actually got the... Um, you're making a little mini stalemate line. Yeah, you're making deliberate stalemate lines, yeah. yeah. Maybe that was a bit better way of staying in the conversation. So you're making a little mini stalemate line then? Yes. Well, then by default, neither of you can kind of stab each other. So then you can go off and attack some other place at place. Yeah, you're right. Barency, Norway, St. Pete. Actually, the example would be maybe um, uh, a fleet in St. P, a fleet in Burrance versus a, <clears throat> um, a fleet in Norway and a fleet in Norwegian Sea. No one can crack it. Provided you don't kind of move anything into Finland or Sweden. Yeah, so you position your, your your defences in such a way as to be non-threatening, yeah. but are highly defensible. Yes, and yeah. it works well if you kind of coordinate it, and as you said before, you explain the rationale of why you're doing that. So you go, okay, well this way you can't attack me, I can't attack you, yep, and we can, focus and we can then focus directions. on other areas. Yeah. yeah. But you do need that um, buffer of units that you can kind of dedicate towards that. Yeah, you need that depth, depth of strategic defence. Yeah. And yeah. then sometimes that can then lead to a demilitarisation where you go, okay, well maybe you pull back Norwegian or disband Norwegian or do something and now I'll disband Barents and... Or I'll move my units away depending on the location. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I think we covered trust. I think we've done trust very well. Time for another drink. Yes. Time for another drink. Time for another drink. Cool. Back in a sec. Of course. And we're back. Cheers. Cheers. Solid. Yeah. Right. Must be happy hour. Yours only five bucks. Yeah, it is happy hour. Sweet. Yeah. Mine's not. Sorry, mine's still nine dollars. Yes. Anyway. Anyway. Um, so last episode you were talking a little bit about, um, by the time, sorry, you are talking about the gunboat game we were in. And you kind of disclosed a certain amount of information which you said, oh, this game will be finished by the time the recording goes out. Yeah, it's not finished. And it's still going, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Has anyone sent you a message about that? No, saying, I haven't had any pick up on it. Saying, which I'm, uh, um, this is an anonymous gunboat game. Can we just edit this out? Eternally happy. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. It's fine. Um, it's, it's actually not going so well. Is it? Oh. No, I... Um, I did think it would kind of collapse in a... Smouldering heap? Smouldering heap. Well, let me pull it up. Um, no, it's not that one. Not that one. No, no one. It's not that one. No, this that's, one. It, that's it. That's it. That's it there. So you're still alive, though. You're yeah, doing one better alive. than me. Um, that's not bad. Uh, yeah, look, the game's going to win with a win. It's going to end with a win. That and I think it's not going to be you. It's not going to be me. So the best I can kind of hope for is to survive. It's um, either this player or that player. And honestly, from what I can see on the map, I think it's the latter. Yeah, I think so too. When you look at 
their position on the board and where they've been able to um, get into. So listen, this is the Fog of War, which I, I just love this as a variant, but it only really exists on the internet. It's burning. It smells like hair. Rubber? Rubber. That's what it smells like. Yeah. Maybe someone's doing donuts and we don't know about it. Anyway. At least we're close to the uh, the exit. We'll just take our drinks and uh, make just our way out. out. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if all of a sudden, guys, the uh, recording I, finishes, I, I, you know what happened. Yeah, I hope it's not the pizza. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> the caramelised rubber pizza. <laughs> uh, yeah, that does taste like rubber. Smell like rubber. Not taste. It smells. Um. Yeah, so I think you uh, are going to start heading out soon. The question is whether the two players who uh, appear to be generally dominating, what's happening within their shared, shared borders? Well, see, the see. thing is, I'm being attacked by one and I'm getting support thrown by another. Ah, so um, which that makes, makes me, me think that think he's about to get shafted himself. That he's also on a defensive. Um, the other player, I want to know who he is, <laughs> is a little fucking weasel and I hope he gets eliminated by the end. Anyway. Well, you probably will, based on this, because of that position and that position. Yeah, well, he's, he's, shoved, he's, he's just called me headaches from the start of this game. So, Unlike that bastard that opened unlike the English Unlike that bastard channel. that opened the English channel. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So, that one's still going, still surprisingly. Still ongoing, surprisingly. I didn't think it would still be. But and you're in a few other games. What else is going on in the wonderful world of Kana? Uh, I'm in three Europa Renovatios. Wow. Three. Four. I'm in four. Four? Four. Fuck. Um, but I guess I'm going to talk about one of them. Okay. Why is that? Did you win it? Well, <laughs> no, I, no. No. No, not really I at all. I did. I mean, there, there has been a winner of it, though. Yes. Yes, yeah. Yeah, some fella managed to do it solo on Denmark, of all, of all countries. Yeah, we showed you that map last episode, which was like probably recorded four weeks ago. And yeah, the at the time, won. he was doing exceptionally well, and he went up to win. And you know, the, 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 really, the thing that just blows my mind, he did it all with drop-down menus. How do you know that? Did he talk about it? He's, talked, he's spoken about it. You, you read through the forum post on it. All right. And he's... he's, he's the way he's spoken about it points towards him using drop-down menus and not using the interactive map. So I just don't know how that works. So this is Agnar. Congratulations, Agnar. Who I is mean, now the a... number one player in VDIP who knocked off Cypeg, which no one ever thought was possible. Not just the six-month thing, but the all-time number yeah, one Yeah, so now. how long was Cypeg actually at number one on the all-time. Oh. He was on there for like three, four years, like ever since we've been doing this podcast. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, because he won that World War Four game yep. that sent him right up to the top. Yeah? Which just goes to show what the impact of like soloing a game of like, how many people are in the Europa game? 34 or something like that or more? Yeah, 36 or something, yeah. So doing that just gives such a mass, and obviously it depends a lot on the players that you're playing and who and you're where beating, their ranking and is. where their ranking yep. is, where your relative ranking was at the start. And yeah. So this dude's just shot up to the top. Well done, Agner. I mean, I really hope you stick around and not just sort of disappear, like Cypig. Cypig. <laughs> um, yeah, like stick around and keep playing the games because that's how the actual system works. You know, it'll yep. adjust you to your level. You know. 
if you are that awesome and you win another one, well, hats off to you, mate, because that's, yeah. So the, the challenge, I think, is for any player that gets to number one is what do they do then? How do they kind of retain their ranking? And we've seen how Cypec games the system. It'll be interesting to see if uh, Agnar decides to play a similar boat or similar strategy or whether he... Um... I, I, I have a sneaky suspicion, Andy, that if you were to ever hit number one... That's never going to fucking happen. If you were to hit number one, you would go and play a play diplomacy for an extended period of time. <laughs> that's just my suspicion about how much you well, care about Well, that's just a like hypothetical, rankings. which is never going to happen. So, yeah, you're probably right because it doesn't matter. It's never going to happen. Okay. Um, you know, seeing I keep dropping further and further down the list every single time I log in due to continually losing. But anyway, so you um, want to talk about one of the games. Is that right? This is an anonymous game, though. I guess... This is the, the one we're talking a little bit off tape about before. Yeah. Look, I guess... I just really wanted to talk around, like with these massive world, with these massive maps, right? It can be difficult when to know when to um, put into place various strategic moves. And, and funny, we got around to doing like a an episode around the strategic moves and stabbing and things. Yeah, we haven't got around to that yet, so that's probably why we don't know what we're doing. We'll probably hold this one off for a bit longer, you know. It's just, it's probably it's not really that interesting to listeners for me just to Let's just put it this way. You've, you've got yourself into a position where there's an opportunity for the taking. Yeah. Um, As to whether or not it's... I think... The long term. Yeah. Yeah. You're not in this particular game. I'm not in this game, so it doesn't matter. Game. But, you know, from my point of view... Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Radio. Well, next next episode, I'll tell people whether I went for it or not. Cool. So um, you've got all those renovatio games. Yeah, and that's it. Actually, I do have a um, I do have one more fog of war map that I'm playing, but I'm about to be eliminated in. So yeah. Not really. Oh no. Yeah. Never going to get back into the top hundred, are you? I actually had a lot of luck with this Europa map. That's probably why you're playing so many of them. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. You've been hit and miss because there was that... The game that I'm still in that you said you got eliminated out of. Oh, yeah. But that... that, Yeah. I only joined that to get that going. I've had hit and miss with this map. I've actually had more miss than hit. Yeah. I've had more hit than this. It's only the current game that I'm in, which is... I'm in a stable position. So, let's go to that. Cry guy for Harry. (laughs) Um, So, without going into details about who I am in this one, because I can't... This is a map where... uh, The Golden Horde is doing remarkably well. Yep. The gold. Okay, so this is the one I've been removed from, so I'm happy to talk about it a little bit. You got shafted by the Golden Horde, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the Golden Horde, and this is the Mamluks. The Mamluks seem to be in a in an alliance, and they're threatening west. Now, on the western half of the board, it looks like um, England, France, Spain, as some sort and of England, alliance France going on, and Aragon. Um, 
and I think Portugal as well. Oregon? Yeah, yeah, they seem to be all working together um, against Morocco and TMCN. And sort of there's this middle alliance thing happening where there's just... Switzerland seems to be sitting on the generally on the fence. Bavaria yeah. and Austria seem to be working together. But also Bavaria seems to be working with Teutonic Knights. And the Teutons seem to be putting up some and sort of... No, Teutons like, have been attacking Sweden for a bit. Just now okay. as Golden Horde's attacking Sweden too. Right, so Sweden's kind of on its way out. Norway's, um, Norway's practically dead now. Yeah, so Scandinavia's still up in the air as to where the major powers on that. Looks like Golden Horde has sort of got a start in that area, though England's got a whole heap of fleets bobbing around. Um, in the south, we've got this Tlemcen has sort of solidified his hold over Tunis. Interesting to see where he goes with that. Um, Italy is not Italy anymore. It's been divided between powers outside of Italy. Yep, divided initial. between Austria, the Mamluks, and um, Switzerland, and just a... Tlemcen seems Tlemcen to have an army there as well. In, uh, so, Rome, yeah. It's an interesting division. So how many players are like left? There's not, like many, there's not many players left in the game now. One, two, three, four, five. Sorry. Players that are not going to be dead in two seconds flat. To, to my eyes, coming at About this, I haven't nine. looked at this for a long while, it looks like there's a western group, a central group, and an eastern group. And a southern group. And, okay, yeah. Because seems to be kind of and there, Morocco are working together, and Mamluks seem to be not kind of creating any heat on um, Tlemcen. Do you think that Tlemcen Morocco are kind of got a kind of part of this Eastern Bloc Golden Horde Mamluk Tlemcen Morocco? It's like a I don't know, like an S-bend on the map. Yeah, a bit like that, yeah. Hadn't thought about it that way, but that makes sense. Interesting. Do we have a quick off-tape comment on this one? Yeah, we should. Just yes. sec, listeners. And we're back. Yeah, and so that was quite interesting sort of insight there. Thank you. Um, I, still, I, I, I still always hold that it's the logical thing to do to try and organise an alliance against the leader of a map. Yes. You know, um, yes, there's strategic advantages to being like the junior partner to that leader, but sooner or later, that leader's going to... Step on you. Step on you. Because That's nature of being the nature leader. of being that leader. Of, of this sort of game. Yeah. Yeah, so... Interesting to see how this one works out because there's a whole heap of um, dynamics that we just spoke about off map. Though I'm, you know, totally out of loop on that makes it a much more interesting strategic depth space. Yeah. Mmm. Very mm. interesting. Anyway, so um, I'm actually in a lot of other games. So I've got my divided states game still going. Still going. Still going. Still going. I saw there was a forum post about that. Yeah, people have started noticing it's been going forever. Two years. It's two years in June? Two years in June. I think. I don't know. I can't really remember. 
Have you got it there? Um, does it say when it started? Oh, does it? Does it? Know. Does it? Probably not. Don't worry about it. No, I think it does. If you go back to the order history. Oh, we don't want to go back that far. It's going to take forever. Like, um, it's. I think the game started in. Sorry, if you guess. What are you doing? What are you doing? Kano, what are you doing? Right, go down here. Go to archive orders. Yeah, but it won't tell you the date, will it? Yeah. Really? Well, I think it does. You go all the way back down to. Oh, that's no, it's not going to work. Yeah. Uh, spring. It's only got last 20 turns. Anyway, so we're up to the year 2088, and the game started in the year 2020. 2020. Actually, so we've been you going we for 68 game years. 68 game years. But some... Um, it's kind of slowly inching to, I think, towards the end game. Yeah. Actually, I'll tell you where we could find it. We don't have to find it, do we? We do. I want to know. We have to edit all this shit out. No, you don't. There's usually a whole heap of chatter just when the game starts. Oh, back in the beginning of the game? Okay. Yeah. Oh, my God. Fuck. Shit. What are you doing? You just lost it all. You're going the wrong way. No, I can't. Where are you going? Yeah. There we go. Messages. Alright. Messages. Go back to farm to the beginning. I oh, know. May. May. May is when people start talking about it. What? No, that was a Game Master post. Yeah, so it was about to start. Da, 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 da. Oh, yeah, so. Two. Oh. I think I was right about June 2018. June. June? Yeah, June. No, it's still going. We'll soon find the date. There it is. Yeah, 30 June. There we go. <laughs> so about 18 months. You're heading months. for a toilet run. Okay, pause. Okay, back again. Cheers. Cheers. So the only other thing that's going on at the moment is um, my 1812 Overture game at Playdip. How's that going? Not very well. Oh. Okay. On your way out, are you? Uh, most definitely on my way out. So um, the thing I find about this, because it's it's not technically a play dip, it's been kind of helped facilitated by a play dip. It's all been done on Discord. So um, how does that work? I still haven't got my head around. It's like magic. So so what so are you I'm doing? just showing Kane of the map here. So I'm England and. Um, uh, Canada. So I still have my little one SC down in Cadiz in the bottom of Spain. That's England. That's England. We've got something up Edinburgh, way. Right? Yes, but I've just, that red circle means that I've just been just I have to retreat that one. Oh, so he's on his he's gone. Yeah. Okay. So, so France has just eaten all of you. England. Yeah. Although I just moved back into Copenhagen. Oh yeah. It's not going to last long. The look of it. No, so that's so those two are my only real existing units in Europe. And over in North America it's not looking very good either because I just lost Halifax. Oh yeah. And Montreal. You're getting munched up over there too. I'm in Toronto. So I'm down to one supply centre in North America and two supply centres in Europe, which are quite 
separated. Yeah. And I think I'm pretty much no, I think you're screwed better. Yeah. in that one too. So tell me how the Discord works. What's going on there? So the way it works is, it's obviously once you're playing the game, it basically has, so I'll just give you an idea here. So go into this, which is like... So you've got all these different options here for your um, public chat, so you can kind of see what everyone's kind of saying in public, which is usually just bullshit. For your game? Yeah, for the game. Yep. What's that one about? Uh, someone's best being silly. How unusual. Um, Off-topic conversations, there's the adjudication, there's the maps, announcements saying when your orders are due. There's a section where you submit your orders, so basically you type your orders out and send it through to the GM, who's no pun intended. Oh, okay, so that's just you and him. Yep. Okay. So he adjudicates that manually. And then you have a section down here for communication. So where you're communicating with particular players like, you know, Britain to France, USA to Britain. Britain to Chenmark. Yep. This, yep. this is fine. Shostria. This is like an area here which is like from multiple, about three different players communicating as one. Okay. So this is an example where you can kind of have situations where you've got like those two there and me are all having a bit of a chat. So it's, so it's able to have multiple players talking all at once around plans. Okay, but still hand adjudicated. Hand adjudicated. He'll then put up the maps showing what needs to be required as well as the, the orders and text-based forms. So. Okay. So it's going back to the old play-by-email and play-by-discord chat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, I get it. But I think that's actually not a bad way of doing these games where the map and the variant uh, doesn't easily lend itself to um, being coded up. Yeah. So like major minor powers. Yeah, uh, actually in that map you can probably get away with it. But there's probably certain, certain rules between when you have your major minor or whatever like that that might make it a bit confusing. Like special... Build orders or yeah, special a, units. Special units, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where a human being can understand what to do far quicker than trying to work out the, the machine. fucking code. Yeah. yeah. Well, the machine can work it out provided you write the code, but you have to work out how to write the code. And I, who knows how to write code? Nah. Not me. Um, just clever developer people. Anyway, shall we wrap it up? I reckon we'll wrap it up. Thanks, guys, for listening to us. And we hope you got a lot out of the interview yep. and our ramblings about, you know, shitload of stuff, what we talked about. So, cheers, I'm Kana. I'm Ambi. Till next time, bye bye.